0: The time is 10.03 and you are tuned to WERU FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next.
1: operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. In September of 2007, after fledging the last of her five children, nurse midwife Linda Robertson, took leave from her work with the Women's Health Center in Bar Harbor for a year's assignment with Doctors Without Borders. She found herself in a tiny rural village in war-torn Democratic Republic of the Congo. Despite differences, she discovered an invisible cord that connects her and her midwife colleagues who overcome steep odds to give support and care to the women they serve. And this morning, we're going to talk with Linda about her experience and about her um, book, which she has titled... uh, um, Sunday Morning Shamwana, A Midwife's Letters from the Field. And uh, this show, I've said, A Midwife's Letters from the Land of the Children, because that's the translation.
0: Right. That's what uh, the name Shamwana, which was the name of the village that I was in, translate in the local language to uh, Land of the Children. Mm. We should say welcome back,
1: because um, we had you on Talk of the Towns when you came back um, from um, the Congo and and, uh, talked about the experience. And tell us what led you to seek that experience.
0: Okay, um, as you said, my five children were grown and had gone, and I probably was, um, you know, on the cusp of a midlife, you know, (laughs) I don't want to say crisis, but it was reflection, Uh um, as I hear a lot of people do when you get to this stage where you say, you know, my whole focus of raising my children and, you know, getting a secure career and job, you know, is, is there, what now, (laughs) um, you know, I also crave adventure. Always have. You know, had been in the Peace Corps, worked overseas. So I did kind of sit myself down and go, "What am I going to do?" I was burned out. Um, not so much much with my job, which I love, but with our healthcare system. Um, I was frustrated. I was frustrated with the changes that were happening that I didn't feel were um, really promoting what i thought was good health care but i was powerless and needed to adapt to them i knew that um but i thought you know there's something bigger i'm supposed to be doing so i this was an ad, uh, an organization that i had always admired it was sort of on my bucket list you know someday i want to work with them you know I, like i said i'd been overseas in a couple different capacities and i thought well what am i waiting for you know kids are gone um, I'm going to see if I can take a year's leave of absence and do something that really matters. You know, I w- was frustrated with our involvement in wars and, you know, the the suffering that you hear around the world. And I thought, I've got skills to offer, um, you know. I, I, I'm not saying I'd really thought it through that well. I just thought I need to go.
1: Well, you in your book, you mention um, going to Real Pizza, one of our favorite institutions in the community, and um, seeing a movie, and that that helped with that
0: decision. The idea had been parking, okay? Mm. It was out there. Like, a lot of people have ideas like, oh, I'd like to do that someday, or, you know, but then what, what's that trigger that makes you finally do it? And, and I can really pinpoint that night, um, I really wanted to see Hotel Rwanda. Um, it was freezing cold. It was middle of winter. And, you know, I had asked a few people to go and they had already seen it or didn't want, you know, it was something like that. So I I ended up, it was bizarre because I was the only one in the theater. It was a late show. It was a Tuesday night in January. And I started watching the movie and I just thought, this is a sign. I mean, I don't want to sound too weird about it, but it was, it, that's how I felt. Mm. I sat there and went, I need to go. I need to go do something now. And I really, I left the theater and went, I'm going to stop thinking about it, and I'm going to do it. Mm.
1: And so you found yourself with Doctors Without Borders. Um, the, the book co- talks a little bit about that. But um, tell tell us about um, how you kind
0: of found yourself in Shamwana. What, what was that like? Okay, the... Uh, the way I ended up in Shamwana had a lot to do with the dates I could go. Hmm. Um, I applied to the organization. I went through that. It's a fairly grueling process to to apply. And also difficult for someone who's got a job, and especially a job you want to go back to, because the dates that they, you know, the, for the assignments don't necessarily fit in with the dates that you can take off from work. Um, a lot of people that work for this organization... Quit their jobs, and you know, or just loose and go whenever you know you fit into when they can get you into an open assignment. Um, I went and said, "I've got a year. I've got September till September," and um, they don't let you know right away. And they, you know, it's you sort of have to be on on call. And I thought, well, I can't really do that because um, I I don't want to waste this year. I don't want it to be you know three months into it. So I'll start looking at other organizations if you can't guarantee me that I'm going to be able to go. So um, the assignment that came up for those dates was this assignment in Shemwana, and I and I went, I'm going for it. Um, the key was my French wasn't good enough. Um, French is the national language. It was a Belgian colony, and um, I really needed to be able to communicate in French. I had basic French, but it was nowhere near good enough to be able to go so i had to i worked really hard to improve my french skills which in the end i write a lot about Were still not good enough i mean it was good enough for me to pass the test to be able to go but um when i got there i realized i learned a lot about communication there's tests and there's real life you got it. Yep,
1: <laughs> yep. So um, you, um, had you known much about the, the political situation in the Congo? That begins to, to impinge on your book a little bit later, later on. But had you known much about the Congo before you got you know,
0: there? It, now I can say no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I did. Mm. Um, I had been in the Peace Corps in Africa um you know i had lived in i had lived on the continent and congo i mean at the time i i was living in malawi was zaire then and it was a mysterious and still is country you know it was like oh you can't travel in congo you can't travel in zaire um you know dangerous dangerous and no one really explained why i mean we we knew there was fighting um and it was unstable and I had a lot of briefings before I went. So, you know, I knew about the Mai Mai and I knew about the Civil War and I knew about, you know, sessi Seiko. But really hadn't grasped, you know, how complex the situation is. I mean, I lived there for a year and I still it's <laughs> still complicated. Mm. And it's one of the reasons I felt strongly about doing this book. Um, not that I... You know in any way solved all the answers or or, um, or even begin to profess that I am a, an expert on politically what's going on there. I'm not be- but I, I just want to point out how complicated it is, how big the country is, how little communication they have, how one part of the country isn't even sure of what's you know what's happening in another part, or how the fighting in one area trickles down and affects you know the lives of the people. In another area, it's the size of Europe. It has the landmass of the United States east of the Mississippi. It is a huge country with hardly any infrastructure. It's really complicated. Mm. So you
1: found yourself in a village that had been uh, part of the Civil War situation. Um, kind of the the fighting had left that area, and this was an attempt to rebuild some of the infrastructure.
0: Right, Doctors Without Borders um, goes in very often to areas of conflict to um, provide basic medical services. I mean, you know, one of their goals is to save lives. And this was an area, a very remote area. It had been um, the site of, you know, Gideon, who was a, a Mai Mai chief, who had pretty much run amok. Um, from what I could understand, there was never any huge ideology that surrounded the fighting that was going on there, it was it was you know power gone crazy, and it was massacring people for no reason um, but there was a lot of that there. I mean, these people's lives had been destroyed, their houses, their crops, their water had been poisoned. They for ten years had been hiding living in the bush and hiding you know they fled to some you know as many safe areas as they could um but when he was captured this my my chief was captured they started returning home to a village that had been destroyed and that's when this organization doctors without borders went in and tried to just start providing some basic medical services again to a fairly large population that came back to nothing
1: Mm. Mm.
0: I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns
1: and remind them also that this is Pledge Drive. Linda has donated a copy of her book that we'll give away at the end of this hour if you call. You don't have to make a pledge to call, but we'd certainly welcome it if you did. Um, You can call 1-800-643-6273 and uh, get in on that uh, uh, drawing for Linda's book, Sunday Morning Shamwana. We're talking with Linda Robinson, who is an earth nurse-midwife in Bar Harbor at the Women's Health Center, and we're talking about her book, Sunday Morning Shamwana. Linda, your, uh, your role as a midwife, that must have been, you know, what you were doing there in Shamwana, um, but as the book says, you did a lot of other things as well.
0: Well, yeah, I uh, I was unclear when I was going what I was going to be doing. Like I said, I, you know, I had worked as a nurse, I had been in the Peace Corps working as a public health nurse, I mean, I had those skills. Um, I had worked in Samoa as a nurse midwife and started a practice there. So I, I knew I had skills and I thought, I'll, you know, I'll get there. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I, I really didn't have a lot of information before I went about what I was going to be doing. The, the office in New York does recruitment and fundraising for this organization. My, um, center of operation was in Amsterdam. And so when, when I went and had the briefings in Amsterdam, I mean, that was one of my questions. Like, what am I going to be doing? And there weren't a lot of people that could answer that. In fact, most of the people I had talked to hadn't been there. And again, I just kept telling myself, okay, you know I mean? You'll, you'll get there. You'll figure it out. You'll do what they tell you to do. And, and you, I mean, if anyone's considering going with this organization, you, that is really what you have to – that's the mindset you have to have. The spirit. The um, spirit that you have to have. Because – Things are so basic. I mean, the it was a field hospital. It was just tents that were set up. So think of MASH. It was. It, there were a lot of similarities, right, right. To, you know, without the comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm. So, um, but tents were set up um, to provide very, very basic health care to people who had been starving. Now, you know, even if people are hiding for 10 years maternity care and uh, obstetrical care still has to happen. I mean, the women were still reproducing. And there was very little there for services. And there were, no, trained, you know, people trained in obstetrics to, um, you know, to provide those services. So what I what I learned I was going to be doing was... Um, Training um, some of the local midwives, who um, were called accoucheurs in French, a delivery is an accouchement, and so they were literally called deliverers. That was the term for the women who were there who had had no formal training. Um, there were um, there was one. One Congolese woman who had had um, a year's training, um, she was a, she was a sage femme, that's named for midwife in in French. Um, but with with hardly any resources, you know, you have to be pretty creative, and 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 that was incredibly frustrating. Mm. I mean, we didn't even have an oxygen supply, and so the whole population was a high risk population, and in our setting here. I mean, everybody would have been incredibly high risk. I mean, they were all malnourished. Um, you know, many of the pregnancies were products of of rape and abuse. And um, I, I got there and found out it was pretty pretty overwhelming.
1: Mm. One of the things that you learned early on too was that your kind of lifeline home, um, which wouldn't have been the case um, thirty years ago, but was uh, in in this time, is email. Talk a little bit about – the the title
0: of the book is Sunday Morning shamwana. Tell us why that book title. Okay. Um, When I was leaving, I had, you know, I sort of told everyone I was doing this. And and when it actually became reality, you know, my my elderly mother wasn't happy about it (laughs) that I was going away for a year. Um, My kids were very independent and off on their own. You know, they expressed some concern. I mean, it's – it's a little different from when you're in the Peace Corps and sort of going, you know, going to a country that's not at conflict. But um, they were worried, you know. It's what we hear in, in in the media about countries like this. You know, what little we do hear about them are horrible stories, and it's scary, you know. So you know, they were understandably worried about me that you know something was going to happen to me, and I was just so dead set on doing it. Um, I said, you have to look at it this way. Okay, if you were starving, if you were hiding for 10 years trying to find something to eat, if your entire family had been killed in front of you, wouldn't you be hoping someone was coming to help? Like, really? You know, yeah, I mean, I I love it that you're worried about my safety, but why is my life more important than theirs? And if I am capable of going and helping, I really felt like that's what I needed to do. And to reassure them, I said, no matter what. I will write to you once a week. I don't know how. You know, I, I wasn't sure if I could even send a letter or what. But that was the promise that I made. Once a week, I will write to you and I will tell you what's going on. So that's where the once a week came. I got to my site and then, you know, frantic to make good on this promise. I was like, okay, how do I write to them once a week? How do I write to them once a week? You know, as soon as I get there, I find out, oh, there's no mail delivery system. There's no way to send a letter. Um, and... They, but we did have email, and but it wasn't email like, like we can just send an email whenever we want here, um, you know, because of the the satellite hitch up. I was a technophobe. I, re, I mean, I could do email, but I am not a technology person at all. And I get there and find out, all right, we've got these five laptops. Only one of them is capable of sending emails. We do these downloads, which I didn't even know what that meant, Um once a day, you know, so they, the emails got batched and I was on a team of seven people, you know, everybody needing access to these computers and I was slow and I thought, all right, I can't compete with this one laptop between seven people, you know, I'm, you know, to to, to type a letter home and I realized uh, Sunday was the only day we didn't have official like work hours and so my first Sunday there, I went, okay, everybody's still asleep. I can run into the office and I can actually, I had time to, to write an email. And I sent it to my, you know, my 50 people. That was the most you could send it to. And um, I realized Sunday morning was the only time I was going to be able to have enough time to write. As the year went on, I realized how much I needed that Sunday morning. Um, we were dealing, I was on a team of seven people. Everybody from a different European country. We all could speak English, but English was not everybody's first language. So communicating in general was difficult. The store, the, the just the experiences we were having every day, all of us were really struggling emotionally with coping with the horrors that we were seeing. I cope by talking, and I couldn't do that. And I realized on Sunday mornings how... how necessary it was for me to tell the story of what had happened during the week and I did it in this email mm. as fast as I could. I had about four hours every Sunday morning. Mm. That's how the emails came around. And that's how the book came about, because you've taken the
1: emails and then some journal pieces that you were writing at the time and turned those uh, into a book. I'd like you to, to uh, um, give us a sense of, of a piece from your journal, um, starting on page 17. Could you read that for us? Yeah, I can. Um,
0: let me set it up a little yeah. bit. I, I, um, I have the emails that went out to everybody. I was careful about what I wrote in the emails because, again, everybody was reading the same letter. So I couldn't re—I couldn't write specific things to my friends, you know, and then something else to my mother. Everybody was reading the same thing. So I, I wanted to be honest and realistic without terrifying my mother. So, you know, I, if I was scared or, um, you know, or if I were, there were some emotions I felt like I couldn't put into the emails because, again, they were very public. Um, when I was putting them together into the book, I realized I needed to round it out and I needed to, um, I, I needed to put in some of my journal entries because I wrote every day in my journal as well. Um, and I incorporated them all into the... You know, I, I put the journal entries in between some of the letters to sort of give the reader an idea of what was going on that I couldn't put in the, in the emails. One of the things that... Um, was a huge struggle for me again, like I said, was the language. And when you're 50 years old and, you know, competent in your career and feel really secure with what you do, to be thrown into a situation where you look like an idiot. I mean, I felt like I couldn't communicate well in French. I had no idea how to use the computers. My team was much younger than me, and they all seemed like they knew what they were doing and I felt (laughs) like I am a dinosaur so I'll just preface it with that je suis célibataire je suis la mère de cinq enfants je suis heureux d'être ici I am single I am the mother of five children I am happy to be here I'm practicing for the morning meeting tomorrow where all the new people have to present themselves this thing about marital status is supposedly very important to announce I'm dreading that I feel like such an idiot What if I have to explain why I have five kids and I'm single? I don't know how to explain it in French. I'm such a stranger here. Stranger to the village. Stranger to the languages. Stranger to the cultures, African and Generation Xers. Stranger to the technology. I'm too anxious to look good and to fit in. Stefano is drumming on a small jimby. It's probably 74 degrees. The guard has just brought the lanterns. Therese passes behind me wrapped in a towel heading for the shower. Mark left today for one of his drilling projects, and I'm glad not to have his frenetic negative energy around. He doesn't like Stefano's drumming. I love it. It's soothing. I like Stefano. He's quiet, but sweet and thoughtful. I met the chef du village today. Therese presented me to him, a formality. We all walked together afterward to see the foundation of the school that's being built. I did rounds at the hospital today. Almost fainted. Couldn't stop gagging.
1: Mm. Linda Robinson, reading from her book, um, Sh- Sunday Morning Shamwana, a midwife's letters from the field. So you've begun to, to um, that's fairly early on in your experience, help us uh, as, as kind of listeners understand the community. Um, how large was it? Um, you were in a compound versus, which was different than the, the community itself. Talk a little bit about
0: that dynamic. Okay. This area was inaccessible by road. The, it was It was in the southeastern part of Congo in the Katanga, Katanga district, um, but the the only way we got in there was by um, a small airplane the um, doctors Without Borders had cleared this small um, airstrip in the middle of the jungle. Um, I had never experienced being in a place so utterly remote as this um, So it was difficult to get supplies in and out. Um, We, as I said, the the team of seven Europeans lived in what we called a base, um, which was an area maybe about the size of a football field that had a grass enclosure around it, so a fence that surrounded the whole thing. With a corrugated aluminum gate that, you know, was big enough to allow we um, these land cruisers that came in. Even though I said the place was inaccessible, there were very crude dirt roads um, that connected the villages in the area. So, um, we did have vehicles to get us out to the outlying villages. Um, Shamwana, as remote and primitive as it was, was actually the, the epicenter of this area. Um so there was had, a
1: little bit of a marketplace that um, grew well, as,
0: you, as you were there yeah, for Yeah, I mean, it, it had been a thriving village, right. you know, before right. we, it, it was all destroyed. I mean, when I arrived, you know, the, quote, market were four, you know, bamboo tables, mm. um, you know, with a couple pieces of dried fish on it. There was, you know, we, call, you know, we called it a market, but um, there wasn't much there. Again, the hospital was a series of tents, big tents that were set up. You know, we had this enclosed compound um, where we had mud brick, little what we called tuchels with thatched roofs that we, you know, slept in. We had a little thatched roof eating area. We had a mud brick office with a a corrugated tin roof. We had a a mud brick um, storage area that held supplies that we used for the the hospital. Um, The villagers... Lived in grass. I mean, they were, you know, hastily constructed grass huts. Really, you know, dirt floors. Even the Congolese who worked with us. We had a team of seven expats, but we had about sixty Congolese that worked with us. Um, um, their their living situation was the same. Either a grass or mud, you know, very small, crude building with nothing exi- inside except a, a grass mat to sleep on. Mm. So it was very, very, very simple.
1: Mm. I'll ask you to talk a little bit or read something about some of the challenges you faced in providing care, but I'll remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here um, on WERU. It is our pledge drive, and we're welcoming your calls during um, this hour. Um, If you do call, and whether you pledge or not, um, you'll be eligible to... um, get the book, Sunday Morning Shamwana, that Linda has written about her experiences in the Congo as a midwife. Uh, Give us a call, 1-800-643-6273. A little later on, we'll open up our phone lines as well um, if you've got questions or comments uh, for for Linda. But Linda, maybe you could um, uh, go ahead with a reading that kind of helps people understand some of the challenge you you faced, and you may want to set it up again.
0: Yeah, (laughs) the... um the maternity room was maybe a 10 by 15 foot crude structure. It had it did have a cement floor and it was a mud brick walls with a tin roof. Um, there was one bed um, that women came and labored and delivered on. Um, we had no running water. We had uh, women every day that would go and collect water from the river so that we could wash our hands with, Um, you know, it was Brown river water, which is also what we showered with and drank, Um, you know, filtered and boiled. But, but, you know, what we were using at the hospital was unbelievably primitive. When I, when I first arrived there, I was, like I said, in my journal, I could not stop gagging when I first went over there. There was no sanitation. And, and, there was, there was nothing to clean up a woman with afterwards. you know we would use her own clothes to to you know clean up everything we needed to clean up, put it in a bucket, and then one of her family members had to go and wash all this stuff with the dirty river water um, and I was yeah, I realized my role was going to be to deal with the complication you know the, the maternity complications, but we had, I had nothing to work with. One of the phenomenon that I experienced were these women that would not push their babies out. Um, I talk about this a lot in the book. It was very frustrating. The matri- mortality rate is so high. You know, 50, 40 to 50% of children under 5 years old die. Um, the women have no transportation to the hospital. If they're in a remote village, they have to come laid out on a bicycle, supported by family members. And uh, I mean, they try to deliver at home, but... When it's obvious it's not going to happen, that's when they put her on a bicycle and some women were coming just miles, bleeding or obstructed in labor. And then they get there and I've really, you know, we could do crude surgery, but that was a last resort. One of the tools that we use here um, is a vacuum extractor. Um, that's, you know, it, it, it facilitates a vaginal delivery if we need to for fetal distress or for maternal exhaustion. And I felt like if I only had one of those, I could help because women come in, they've been in labor for days, they're obstructed. Maybe the baby's already dead and I just need to get this baby out. We had ordered one. It was taking months to come from Amsterdam, um, and so we had nothing to use. We had no tools. So the 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 accoucheurs would just push on her uterus, which is very dangerous and can rupture a uterus. Um, but it was you you you're you're making decisions there that you would never make here. It's like you know, the baby's going to die or she's going to die or you know you have to make these split second. Not, they're not even split second. But you know you sit there and weigh um, life like you never do in our very comfortable system here. So this, I'm going to read, um, was right after I had finally received the vacuum extractor, which I had been waiting for. The other huge addition to the maternity service here is the vacuum extractor that finally arrived from Amsterdam. I had been so frustrated having nothing to use to help a woman deliver if there was fetal distress or, more frequently, maternal exhaustion or seizure. It has been really, really horrible. A month ago, this vacuum, which had been in the pipeline for six months, arrived, and it's such a relief. I haven't used it too often, even with these long pushing stages, because I don't want people to think that everyone's going to deliver with this now and never have to push. But let me tell you, it has come in very handy on several occasions. This is not the plastic model we use at home with the soft cap. This is an industrial-strength, sterilizable metal cap, jar-on-the-floor number, and I was initially scared to death of it, but we bonded. We had a woman last week who arrived by bicycle, fully dilated for seven hours and in labor for God knows how long before that, and I could actually do something. Prior to this, the only other option was pushing on her uterus physically, and that's just so miserable and dangerous. Last Sunday night, it came in handy when during an incredible deluge of rain, I got called over to the hospital to find a young girl had just arrived by bike from Kiseli, 18 kilometers away. She was drenched, along with the people who had accompanied her, two of them with babies on their backs." She had taken traditional medicine two days before and was unable to deliver. The baby was dead, and there was such a foul odor emanating from her that I gagged when I examined her and almost threw up. If I couldn't get it out with the vacuum, the only other option was a C section, and that would have been ghastly considering how infected she already was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Linda Robinson, reading from Sunday Morning Shamwana, her book *Midwife's Letters from the Field*. Uh, Linda, you talk um, about the this failure to push or the failure to uh, the, the lack of desire. You have a theory about that. I don't know if you've kind of tested that out with with others, but your theory was that these folks were so um, scared
0: about life that they didn't want to um, bring in new life. That was one thought. I mean, I could not understand it. Mm-hmm. They, I have never experienced. These women
1: had had babies before. Oh, right.
0: Tenth, eleventh, you know, babies that I would be able to see the head for hours, and we could not convince her just to push it out, and it, it it was bizarre. I still don't understand it. And you know, again, the communication was so non-existent, really. I mean, I was speaking French with the. With the accoucheurs, but the but the village people didn't speak French. I mean, they were speaking their local tribal language, Kiluba. and you know. So, you know, I just want to illustrate. You know, French was not my first language. I was not fluent in it by any means, and French was not the accoucheurs' first language. So we're communicating in a language that we're you know that we're all sort of not perfect in, and then listening to translations into this language that we're not fluent in, from a tribal language that has no medical vocabulary. So, you know, who knows? Mm. You know, a lot of the communication was nonverbal. And, you know, and, and as I, w- I would write home about my frustrations with, you know, not doing well enough in French, and I would get reassurances from people at home saying, you know, well, you know, your, you know, your compassion will shine through. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I can let people know I care. But, you know, that doesn't help when you're when someone's coding and you're trying to resuscitate someone and you really have to be communicating effectively. So we could never get explanations from women about why they were so afraid to let these babies out. I mean, I could speculate women women don't report rape. Um, You know, it is it's it's sort of socially dangerous to do that. You know, they're they're cast out of the family often if they've been raped you know even though it was not their fault um, I don't know if it was because they had seen so many of their other children die they were afraid to let a new baby into the world I, I don't know mm. I, I I never got explanations for it but I w- write about it a lot um, it, was, it was a phenomenon that would be very interesting to explore um, but very frustrating when you're physically dealing with it. Mm. So you described your team with
1: Doctors Without Borders and um, the um, Congolese who were part of that team. Um, I think you have a passage that you'd like to um, share with us about um, the team. Is that right? Or were we moving on to uh, um, one that uh, um, I, th- I had you down for? Well, page
0: 23 maybe? Yeah. 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 This was, a, um, this is an, another passage about a delivery, but um, the, the midwives and I, there were um, there were two accoucheurs that I started working with, Beatrice and um, Gerardine. and we became very close. E- even and, and it was interesting. I felt more comfortable with them in French way before I did with anybody else, and it, it maybe because I spent so much time with them. I mean, I spent you know there were many. Eighteen-hour days that that we would be together, and and you do communicate better when you spend when you spend more time with them. But it was, you know, I would often say that uh, it's funny how can I how come I can understand them? Um, but part of it was that we spent so much time, and we just I, I just felt so connected to them. They worked so hard with so little. There were two of them. They worked day and night, never a day off ever. Um, to to help women in. With labor and delivery, they were amazing to me. Um, when I was there, um, Gerardine had a baby herself, which was really wonderful and sweet. You know, whom she named after me. It was really, it was really wonderful. But there were moments, despite the frustration, that I felt like we were a really great team. And that's the passage that I'll, I'll read. Mm. Last night, in pouring rain, a woman had her seventh baby on the road on the way to the hospital, plopped out into the mud. She wasn't far away, and the family ran to get help at the hospital. They put her on the stretcher to carry her the rest of the way, and in the meantime, the guard came to get me. They never, they never tell me the story before I go. The guard just says, Mama Linda, il vous veulent à l'hôpital. Mama Linda, they want you at the hospital, so I never know what to expect. It was pouring. The road was a river to cross. I got there just as they were lugging in this woman with her newborn, still attached, placenta still inside, drenched and shivering. Beatrice and Generose were bickering about how to get her from the stretcher to the bed, big jealousies between those two, while I cut the cord and took the baby to warm him up. Tough little thing. Geraldine came in from her private room to see what was happening. She's amazing, and I felt good. Everyone was fine, cold but fine. I felt like part of a team that's working together and doing something good. I needed that. It was nice getting everyone dried and warm and walking into the lamp-lit maternity tent and hearing the familiar greetings and getting them tucked in. There was such good female energy in there. I almost felt like pulling in a mattress and joining the pajama party. And when I was leaving and one of the young girls tugged on my Polar fleece shirt and motioned for me to give it to her, I almost took it off and handed it to her. But I knew if I did that, there would have been a fight for it, and it would spoil the balance. So I laughed and said "We oui, on September, and she collapsed on the bed laughing. Mm. This was one of those moments and that we, the team would cling to, we think, okay, there's hope. Because so much of our time there, you think, oh, my God, it's so overwhelming. There's so much. It's never going to get better. And, I mean, the, the, actually, I'm realizing as I was reading that the names might be a little confusing. Gerardine was, um, had had her baby, and so she was in a different, you know, she was kind of recuperating from that, and we had, a, we had hired another midwife to help, and, and there, was a, there was jealousies between those two. Um, but, but I did feel that night that it's going to get better there's there's hope we can all work together and improve things here and i i would cling to that there were those little moments that you that were just a, a means of survival when you're when you're kind of faced with oh, hopelessness day mm. after day mm. <laughs> I, because I want to talk about the writing of the book, I
1: think I'll um, move you on to um, the, the last reading, um, uh, the uh, piece where you were kind of celebrating... Um, no, excuse me, th- um, the the reading that was on the book jacket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll re- move you on to that, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about writing the book.
0: Okay. This, um, I spent, like I said, I spent a lot of time um, sitting with the acushners uh, as we were, you know, waiting for women to deliver, or um, you know, trying to develop um, programs or plans to do some teaching to help them be healthier. And again, it's it, it's it's also complicated, and um, you know multi-layered, the the levels of need were, you know, just incredible to describe, which is why I would write pages and pages and pages every Sunday. Um, But there was also this trying to understand the culture, you know, and I, and I always considered myself fairly, you know, culturally sensitive, but I was, I was just always, you know, taken back by how wise and, you know, how much I had to learn from them. You know, we kind of go into these situations thinking, all right, I've got all these skills I'm going to offer, I'm going to teach them. But I, there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't feel like, wow, I, I, I was learning a lesson every single day. When the young girl whose baby died was in labor, I had asked Beatrice, who sits with the women when they deliver at home? She told me the mothers and grandmothers are with them. I said it was too bad that this poor girl was here alone as she was so young and seemed scared. Beatrice looked at me very quizzically and said, She's not alone. You are here. I am here. Geraldine is here. Like she had no idea what I was talking about. She reiterated, "Sue Alone? Making sure she understood me and laughing, shook her head, pointing to all of us again. Elle n'est pas, Sue? She's not alone. Like women are women. It doesn't matter who's related to whom. She and Geraldine do mother the women in a really tender way. I love watching them. They'll whip off their ponchos, revealing gym shorts underneath, and hop up on the bed to cradle the woman's head in their laps if it helps her to push. They also scold like a parent would. It's very touching. There really isn't any room for other people anyway, and it's already unbearably hot in there. A couple of times, Gerardine has taken off her blouse and continued giving fundal pressure in her gym shorts and black lacy bra. All of us are usually dripping with sweat. There are many times when I've wondered why this is supposed to be better than delivering on the ground at home. Mm. Here it never happens that a woman comes in to have her baby completely by herself. Um, And, you know, I was completely taken... I mean, without a family member or a partner or somebody, you know? And and I would think, my God, what kind of losses have they endured that that this would be such a weird thing for me to say that she was alone when there were four people standing right in this room. But I'm talking about 13-year-olds... Having babies, you know, whose fathers were older men, you know, whether this poor young girl had a say in whether she got pregnant or not, and then would be from a distant village and would be, you know, brought in and left there completely alone. I mean, it would just be unheard of in our culture. And it was a complete, it was a complete revelation to me and also made me feel wonderful that, wow, Right. I guess when you are losing friends and family every single day, you know, you, you know, you become, you become partners with whoever you're with right away. Mm. <laughs> it was amazing. Mm.
1: We're speaking with Linda Robinson about her book. Um, the uh, the book is called Sunday Morning Shamwana. Um, you can participate in our conversation. Um, I'll give you that phone number in just a minute, but I'll just remind you that um, this is Pledge Drive. We are giving a copy of Linda's book away in a drawing at the end of the program. So if you'd like to enter that drawing and perhaps make a pledge, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, give us a call at 1-800-643-6273. So that's the number for the pledge drive and for um, the drawing. If you'd like to participate in our phone conversation, um, give us a call at one 866 Six, two five nine three seven eight, Linda, I'd like to talk a little bit about the the writing of the book. Um, we have a watering can now, so um that's that's makes it official. There are some numbers in there oh, that good. we can we can uh, <laughs> add to our our list again, if you're interested in in, in uh, drawing for the book one eight hundred six four three six two seven three um you decided to to turn this um into a book, the emails and your journal pieces. The the process was um, um it took you almost as much time to to write the book as the experience was probably
0: well you know it it's interesting i did not go there intending to write a book right. that, at all um but during that the year I was there, the the emails sort of took on a life of their own. I mean, they got you know they went to fifty people, but they got forwarded and forwarded to lots of other people, and I started hearing from people I didn't even know. Saying, "Oh my, you know, I read your email. It was amazing. I want the rest of them." And and you know, through the circuitous process, I heard from an agent in New York saying, "You know, these really should these letters really should be a book." You know, I was still there. I didn't have access to internet, I didn't, uh, you know, I was still coping with just getting through my days. Um, I started going, oh, wow, I mean, I was flattered and, you know, like, hadn't really crossed my mind, you know? Um, But then, you know, I started talking to this woman in New York about, you know, the possibility of bringing these stories to a bigger audience. And um, I I had a lot of soul-searching to do with that. I mean, I... I, I again did not go there as an investigative journalist. Um, you know, I went there to, to feel like I was offering something to to people. Um, but the more I went over that process, and more I listened to the the Congolese who I loved dearly, say, "You're going to go. You're going to forget all about us." And I would go, "How could I ever forget you? I will never forget you." But then I realized... It's impossible to come back here. And they said, you know, but everybody forgets us. And, you know, I realize it's not that they forget you. It's just people don't know you exist. Mm. It's so hard in our culture and society to really have an understanding of what it's like to live continually in a country at war with so few resources. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, I have a hard time... Reading stories about people at war, and I thought if I could bring their story out in a way that's readable, that that it doesn't make you want to put it down because it's so horrible. I try. I, I hope I didn't skew it by the readings that I chose today, but um, but I tried to balance the hard stories with. There were a lot of funny stories about living on a team,
1: including a proposal of marriage from someone who was already well married.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had a couple of marriage proposals, one more serious than the others um that you know was sincere i mean i um Mario, who was one of our truck drivers, had had four wives, and he sincerely was proposing marriage i mean, I go through that story i mean there were I tried to balance it with um you know showing that i 'm just a regular person. You know, I'm not superhero. I had this need to do this. Um I have a job. I you know, figured out how to, you know, fulfill a dream I had, you know, and I and I want to show people that you don't have to give up on dreams and goals because you got a mortgage, you got a job, you got <laughs> kids, you got whatever, you know. Um and so the more I thought about it, you know, after the experience, more I thought, well, you know, the book's written, really. You know, I've got all these emails. Um, that was way more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, the emails were all written, all 600 pages of them. That It, it was way too bulky. And, and then really examining how to put it into a readab- more readable format. Um, people were getting the emails once a week. So it didn't matter so much if they were bulkier than they needed to be, <laughs> and I was writing as I speak, put together into a book that gets that gets cumbersome. And so, um, you know, with the inspiration from this agent in New York, I thought, oh, maybe this really could be a possibility, and I could I could just raise some awareness.
1: So you um, you kind of toyed with the idea of going the the regular route of having a publisher, um, having a representative and and doing that, you rejected that, decided to self publish what was that decision like
0: um, enlightening um, when I like I said, I kind of got blinded by the flattery that there was actually someone that was interested in making this into a book and and I was naive, and I was like, "Wow, okay, yeah, and ready to sign on to anything." And then, and actually sort of did preliminarily, and then really saw what the process was like. I went, oh, I have no say in the title? Because I was like tossing out all these titles that I thought were great, and no, no, no. And um, no say in the cover, no say in the title. They sort of own it, you know. I was reading these contracts going, well, wait a minute. You know, you know, and if you don't, if they don't sell a certain amount by this time, then, you know. and But, but they own it, so I can't take it and do anything with it. Um, and I thought, well, you know what? I mean, especially, you know, big publishers, they're not going to send a, a first-time author here on a book tour. And I knew I could travel around and I knew I could tell the story in a way that, you know, people would want to read this. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm going to be doing that myself with my money, why should a big corporation, you know, get the, the profits from that when I could take it and send it back to the people whose stories they are? You know, I feel like Congo is probably the richest country on earth with their natural resources, everything. And they've done nothing but suffer for it. If something comes from their stories, I wanted to go back to them And you know, so you know, I I just kind of said, "Well, wait a minute." I I backed out of that. And when I I need to look at this in a different way, and see if um, I, I, I just did it in a a simpler way that I could have more control over it, Mm. and over what happens if something
1: comes of it. So, what was the process like of of self-publishing? You 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 had to go through the process. How did you learn about the process? And we've only got about five minutes, okay. so
0: just... Well, you know, the whole idea of having more control over it and, you know, and standing up to these big corporations, you know, well, that's all great when I'm, you know, thinking about it. Then I spent, actually, it took me a couple of years to get it into a, a really manuscript format, to to edit it down. And and then I started realizing, like, ooh, there's a lot of responsibility here. You know, aside from, you know, what it cost to, to cost to publish it, which is actually, I think... Negligible when you think about the the great scheme of things. It's more the responsibility of it. And there is a, there was a huge learning curve. It's like, okay, step by step. How do you... Like, I need someone to copy edit it. And, all right, so you find someone to copy edit it. And then, oh, talk to... Like, how do you actually get it printed? And how do you find someone to design the cover? And, you know, things that I'm not good at. And, you know, I... when When I feel like I'm on the right track and there's something I have to do, like I had to go to Congo and do this experience... I ended up feeling the same way. I have to write this book. I have to tell their story. So I didn't think too far down the line with it. It's like, okay, then I'm going to write the book. And so I wrote the book and then I found some to copy it. And I just took it step by step. And then I go, oh, how do you get a Library of Congress number? Okay, well, you take that step and find that out. Mm. And, you know, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been a big learning curve. But if you break everything down step by step, you can learn to do it. The the thing now is oh then there's the whole business aspect of it like how do you get it into bookstores how do you you know how do you get it out there to people okay yeah we've got social media now you, it's easier to let people know about it but then how physically do you get books to Chicago yeah it's a it's so far been a real step by step process but I'm I have no regrets mm-hmm.
1: and so at this point um, the book is available um, l- locally through um, Sherman's and um, elsewhere, um, but also you've ha- you've gone the Amazon route as well.
0: Well, Mystery Cove Bookshop um, in Hull's Cove, um, it's in their bookshop, and um, yeah, they have it up on, so you can buy it on Amazon through them. Um, it's also in Sherman's here in Bar Harbor, and at the other Sherman stores in Maine, um, you can also buy it directly from the website. Which is com. so it can be ordered directly mm. online through that, and then we'll see. Mm.
1: So, what's been reaction so far? You've you've been at the Common Ground Fair. You've taken it to your hometown um, to do a reading, and and uh, have you got other things coming up that uh, listeners might be interested
0: in? Uh yep, November twenty ninth, seven p.m. I'm going to be at the Jessup Library in Bar Harbor. Um, I'll be doing reading and showing some, um, showing some pictures, um, and, you know, answering questions. Uh, you know, a lot of people who are considered going overseas or, you know, going into the medical field are interested in it. And that's, that's exciting for me. I'm, mm. I I love promoting that. So yeah, I'll be selling the book that night. Um, and and again, yeah, then it's gonna be step by step. We'll see where it goes. The response y- y- so far has been good. Your
1: fourth grade teacher came to your session in Neighborhood, oh, yeah. Massachusetts. That was
0: amazing. <laughs> um the you know, high school friends um who are on the library board there set this uh book signing up there and the response was unbelievable. I was I was thrilled. It was a small town in Massachusetts. That's but great. my ninety six year old fourth grade teacher, first person who started teaching me French, that was kind of exciting.
1: (laughs) I'll list our, our, uh, remind folks that this is uh, Pledge Drive this week. Um, You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking with Linda Robinson about her um, new book, uh, Sunday Morning Shamwana. Um, There is time. If you'd like to get into the drawing for that book, um, give us a call at 1-800-643-6273, and we'll make a drawing at the end of the hour uh, for um, Linda's book. Um, so, Linda, I want you to perhaps set up the the, uh, the last reading I've asked you to, to do, and that's um, the celebration. You in, in the book, you talk about when anybody ever leaves Doctors Without Borders, they're responsible for planning their own party, which includes getting the goat.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... there's very few things to look forward to when you're you know working in a in a situation like that but you know there, there's people continually coming and going i mean people i stayed for a year but most people stayed for either three six or nine months and so when someone leaves there's a party and it's one of the things that the you know the national staff has to look forward to um not easy to get some beer and um and uh food there um and you know, I've said to people, you know, one of the hardest things I did w- was go do this experience. The second hardest thing I did was leaving. Um, it's it's really difficult to say goodbye because it's not like you can go back or um, even can stay in touch. So you know, the people that I came to love and admire very much, I I grieved horribly about leaving and you know it was sort of ashamed of myself because I was coming back to this very comfortable life and and they were staying there but and, and, and I didn't have the language skills to explain that the uh, the Akushira's all came to say goodbye to me and I'll just read this last last um, paragraph here mm. about saying goodbye to them I felt so close to these women this colorful pile that we then were in reality we'd hardly spoken to each other but there was a bond I couldn't explain I was sad, but I didn't cry. I wanted to give them some of the strength that I had to spare, as if that was the only gift that really mattered. I didn't say this. I thought it hard in my head. I said, please be here when I come back. Keep going. You can. I know you can. I thought that hard. We all hugged one last time. Then they filed away a parade of color, bent at the shoulders, plastic grocery bags dangling. Papa Isaac opened the corrugated aluminum gate, and they filed out and didn't look back. I stood and watched them go, some piece of myself going with them, and I tried to grasp at some invisible trail of strength that they were leaving in their wake for me.
1: Mm, Thank you. Linda Robinson reading from her book Sunday Morning Shamwana. Um, We're going to uh, make a drawing. Um, I think there's a couple of of, uh, things in there. Linda, would you like to make the drawing? and We'll um, give away a copy of your book. So that goes to Joan, who made an additional gift to WERU, Joan in Stockton Springs. So Joan, you will get a copy of Sunday Morning Shamwana um, from Linda Robinson's uh, experience in the Congo. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Koranak on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests in the studio. This morning was Linda Robinson, author of Sunday Morning Shamwana. Thanks to those of you who called and pledged. Um, We're glad to be able to send that uh, book out to Joan, who made an additional gift from Stockton Springs. Um, Thanks to our underwriters at Maine Community Foundation. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering your program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.